Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Massa, and today my guest is Tamar Haddad. Tamar Haddad is from Jerusalem, and she's currently seeking her second degree at California Lutheran University. But more importantly, she's the author of The Future of Palestine, How Discrimination Hinders Change. Tamar, welcome. Thank you so much, Roberto. Tamar, the only question I always ask my guests, and it is the same question to everyone, is what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? So I was born and raised in Jerusalem. And uh, it's interesting because the people around me who were in Jerusalem, who grew up in Jerusalem like me, they have this very uh, deep connection with the land, with the roots. But it's interesting because I really never felt that connection. Um, I think the city is romanticized um, in a way that's very hard to describe. Like, it is a beautiful city, don't get me wrong. It's a very beautiful city. And there are very beautiful cities too. But then for me as a Jerusalemite, I have to fight to be in a city that caused me like a lot of problems, if that makes sense. Like... I went to Bethlehem University, which is, Bethlehem is a city right next to Jerusalem. And, um, you know, just traveling back and forth, crossing the checkpoint every day, um, even not being able to hang out with my friends who were from Bethlehem or like the neighboring areas around Bethlehem. It was a very long struggle, actually. And I, I always knew it was problematic. But then once you live abroad, because I'm currently in the U.S. and I've traveled a lot, you realize like, no, this is not the type of life I want to live. Like I want to have my freedom. And for my family, Jerusalem is everything to them. 
So uh, my blue idea, um, should I explain what the blue idea is? Yes. Yeah, so the blue idea is basically given to anyone who, who is Palestinian and born in Jerusalem. And uh, sometimes even people, uh, Palestinians in the Israeli parts have it. And it gives me more privilege because that means I have more freedom of movement um, and other um, like health benefits and so on. It just comes with a lot of benefits. And my family lives for that blue ID. Um, whereas for me, I just like never really understood it. For me, it's just uh, why would I still live in a city that's surrounded by walls, basically? So, Tamar, you are the first Generation Z. I'm actually a millennial. I'm the very like I'm. I was born in 1996. I was still consider myself a millennial. <laughs> Perfect. So you're really at the border, but you're the first either millennial or Generation Z on the show. Oh. <laughs> and But it's interesting, you're really across. How's life for your generation growing in Jerusalem? Because, you know, one thing is when you talk to, you know, different generations and they look at the city from a perspective of nostalgia or they remember the childhood of a long gone city even sometimes before 1967, so when the city was divided. But you grew up in, in, in a completely different environment. How's life for your generation? How's your upbringing? What does it mean to grow up in, you know, 21st century Jerusalem? Uh, that's an interesting question because maybe you're right. Uh, the, the connection that people feel are usually like of the older generation, like my parents, their parents, parents, but for me, um, even though I really love the city, I just like it is a love hate relationship, if that makes sense, because I love the people there so much. But then I think we look at things from a new perspective that the older generation didn't look at. Um, they fought for the city. Don't forget, like there was the first, second Intifada and so on. And my family went through it, through it. But I didn't. I really didn't. Um, I missed all of that basically. So what I grew up in was like, oh, this, these are the rules. Uh, you are restricted and you have to live with it. The younger generation still fights, you know, like um, I would just use the very stereotypical image of children throwing rocks because I've seen that. Still, like for me, it's not okay what I see. And for them, because they've been fighting for it for so long, they're just so attached to the city. Interesting. There is certainly a generational gap here in, in terms yeah. of uh, understanding and also relating to the city. I, I was just wondering, you know, you think yourself as a teenager going around Jerusalem, what kind of images you would see? What kind of uh, perception, what kind of dreams you had roaming around the city? Um, in my teenage years, that's interesting. Um, I remember one of the uh, people you hosted on your podcast, he was a photographer and I forgot his name, but I think the way he described it was very interesting because it wasn't just from one perspective. So usually there's the, the Arab side of Jerusalem, like the yellowish brownish imagery, the, like the, the rocks of the land itself, they're like kind of whitish yellowish. Um, you, you would remember like the Dome of the Rock, it's golden, all those like um, brownish colors, earthy colors. And I love that image. But then 
um, he talked about the other side that we really like as Palestinians never really talk about like the the westernized side of the city the malls and um, uh, just like the trains it's very um, modern and there's the, also the traditional and there's that combination at the same time so it, that's why it's beautiful it's a very new perspective to a lot of people especially to um, foreigners you know I gather you were born in East Jerusalem so I was wondering did you go across? Did you cross that invisible border separating East and West? How did it make you feel? Uh, you mentioned uh, an earlier guest that was uh, um, Issam Nassar, that obviously in the 70s, after the city was militarily reunited after the war of uh, 1967, he was then able to cross that border and explore for the first time West Jerusalem. Uh, obviously, you know, that's a different era. But you were born in a city that was already together by mm -hmm. force, uh, indeed, but also by the fact that eventually, you know, that's the city of Jerusalem. So I, I was wondering, how did you feel crossing? Uh, is that a different Jerusalem? Is that the same for you? Yeah, it's very different. I really, if I'm honest with you, I don't feel like I fit in there. I don't feel like I belong in that area at all. Like, it's not me. It's very, I would describe it as privileged. And um, it just made me always feel like, yeah, this is not my place. Like, I need to be in a place where there's, like, discrimination against me, which is so bad. <laughs> and it's interesting what you're saying, because I uh, sometimes, in, even though as a white man, neither a Palestinian nor an Israeli, uh, so an international, but it, as I used to be a resident of Sheikh Jarrah, I had a similar experience, you know, crossing over West Jerusalem. Obviously, there is an invisible line, and that line tells something people that they're about to enter a different kind of city. And, and, and obviously, if I feel it as a Westerner, I can only imagine what that for Palestinians uh, may mean. One question, another guest, another previous guest of the uh, of the show talked about uh, this very interesting area of Jerusalem, Mamilla. Mm. Uh, Mamilla is this mall nowadays that sits over contested land. Uh, and I would also say sacred land because it's really about a, an old cemetery. It's an interesting place because whenever I walk around, you get the sense that th there is the Jerusalem of a melting pot where people of different uh, ethnicities, languages, religions, uh, traditions, they all kind of merge together. Uh, and I always feel that it's kind of a very optimistic image and maybe a bit naive. But it's true that you get to see, obviously, Palestinians and Israelis just walking together. I wonder if you ever, uh, you know, wander around Mamilla and how you felt about it. Actually, if I'm honest with you, Mamilla is probably my favorite, favorite place in Jerusalem. Like I would go there around every weekend or every two weekends. And I just love the area so much because um, it's it's a nice vibe, actually. It really is a nice vibe. Um, like the outside, air, it's, it's an outside mall. And um, there are two people uh, in the same street but then it's a place where you don't really talk about politics. 
it's just a place to enjoy yourself and maybe that's why it's nice uh, the cafes are nice it's very nice to sit there just like enjoy the breeze it's very beautiful like, i really love Manila. do you think your generation is changing attitude towards the city huh. um it's it's hard to break the cycle because uh we are what our parents are so um the the images in their head the ideas in their head even though they're uh sometimes even unspoken they are we we become those ideas without even know it it's very subconscious and uh i would say no uh it's not gonna change at least not now but I feel like in the future, yes, it might. I feel like we might lose the connection more, but not anytime soon. I want to move and talk about your book, uh, which is very interesting, and I would say also very controversial. And I will leave some other questions about Jerusalem uh, for the very end, sort of uh, bringing mm -hmm. back, um, you know, the story to full circle. Now, you wrote this book called The Future of Palestine, How Discrimination Hinders Change. Can you give the listeners a sense of, uh, of what the book is about? So I first started writing this book um, because I've seen a lot of discrimination, not only in Jerusalem, in Palestine, um, in the West Bank, and so on. And uh, it, it really bothered me because I really didn't want the future generation to experience what me or my friends had to experience. And this discrimination is not like it only happens in Palestine or in the Middle East. It happens literally everywhere. But it's like a first very, very small step. But if I do it uh, with other people, then yeah, in the in the future, there the change might happen. But then, uh, because of my experience in the US, I realized, wait, um, Many people don't even know what Palestine is or what the political situation is like. So um, I was given this platform, a book. So why not um, use my voice as a Palestinian to narrate the story that's barely and rarely, rarely heard in the US. And if it is, it's also, again, very stereotypical and not true. So yeah, that's why I wrote this book. In the book, you talk about the story of one of your friends, you mm. as a classmate. And you talk about what happened to her. Her name was Isra Grayeb. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what happened to her? Yes. Um, so Isra was like my inspiration to write the story. She was one of the people who was discriminated against just for being a woman, a very strong woman, actually. And um, I had no idea what was going on in Isra's life when I was with her until uh, I was here sitting in like in my own room in the US. And I just see her pictures on the internet and I just figure out, oh, she died because of honor killing. Now, for those who don't know what honor killing is, honor killing is when the family of a girl has the right to kill a woman if she did something that caused her family um, to have a bad reputation. Now, of course, um, it's, it's, there's a very cultural difference. Um, it only happens in places like the Middle East. This is not something you would hear about here in the US. And um, what the Isra did, and that's what bothers me the most, 
what Isra did wasn't even worth her murder. All she did was just go out with her fiance, with his sister in daytime to a restaurant. And she just posted a picture and her female cousin was like, no, this is not allowed. Let me talk to her, to Isra's parents and let them act. And uh, they basically just gave her a very hard time mentally. And also she was kind of physically abused too, but it was mostly mental, the pressure and the stress they put her under. And she just couldn't take it and ended up dying. So um, it's been happening for years. 92 women, I think that's the number, die every year in the Levant, or not even Levant, it's just like Jerusalem and Palestine. And uh, I think it's time to, br to break that cycle. It really is time. A few years back, I was walking in my usual walk when I was living in Sheikh Jarrah from the Kenyon Institute down to the old city. And uh, there were two young girls walking, veiled, mm -hmm. and a bunch of guys on, um, you know, scooters. They start kind of whistling and uh, they made comments. Mm -hmm. And I felt very uncomfortable. And yet I, I knew that I couldn't have done anything really. But it made me think, and now that I'm talking to you, I want to ask, how is it to be a woman and a young woman in Jerusalem nowadays? Um, it's very difficult to be a woman in, in Jerusalem. It's very difficult. I hated that I had to hear those words every time, like um, what do you call it, catcalling or whatsoever. Um, I went to Schmidt school. I don't know if you know it. Yes. So. Uh, Schmidt, um, we in Schmidt we used to wear dresses. That was our uniform, and they were a bit above the knee, but still, like I had to wear to walk every day in the Mustrara, and I hated those minutes of my life. I hated them, and you just had to do it, and you just have to live with it. And then I just was so fed up with it. I'm like, it's time to stop this. That's again another reason why I wrote this book, it's not okay. Like, I don't want to hear those uh, hurtful words anymore. I really don't, so. You're arguing that discrimination hinders change. Why do you think discrimination is the most relevant aspects for change? Because discrimination has so many layers underneath it. So I feel like I, I point out a very important uh, point in the book and I relate um, religion or our religious beliefs, uh, the toxic ones, um, to nationality. Like, oh, if I'm a very good Palestinian, if I'm a very good Arab, if I'm a very good Jerusalemite, then my religion, no matter what your religion is, tells me that this is what I'm supposed to do, uh, even if it's meant discriminating against women and so on. If it wasn't for those toxic, religious, wrong interpretations of our holy books. It maybe, maybe we wouldn't have discriminated against those women, um, the LGBT community, um, uh, other races, and so on. So I thought that just trying to um, end discrimination, which will never happen, maybe we will live happier. I want to bring you to a sort of a contested issue. In your book, essentially, you're talking about, uh, you know, the question of discrimination, honor killing, which, by the way, 
in many European countries was uh, legal until the 1960s, 70s, in some even throughout the 80s. So it didn't disappear generations ago, but just a few decades ago. Yeah. Yet in Israel, you would often hear the argument made by many, not by all, that look at the Palestinians, look mm. how they live, look, mm. they still have honor killing. And this serves as justification for Israeli rule, for Israeli settlements. And in a sense, it gives some Israeli this moral justification of being, or at least to claim to be superior. Do you think you're providing them with an ammunition? Um, I don't. OK, so basically, if we want to talk about facts, they are superior, but not for that reason. They might use that reason as an excuse. But the real reason is we're talking about colonization here. There are two, like there's a binary. There's the inferior group and the superior group. The inferior group is the one that is occupied, whereas the superior group is the one who is occupying, and that's normal. And for them, they're just like trying to find any excuse that might look logical to the rest of the world to murder Palestinians for no reason. Um, but it's not okay at all. Like, yes, we do have our problems, but if you think they're wrong, why not help us? Because basically Palestinians are dependent on Israel and we can't really live without Israel because of the rules and regulations that they have given us. So, yeah, it's, it's a problem and I don't think it will change. And I agree with you in the point that it's easier to point the finger and to tell other people, oh, look at the problems you have. Mm -hmm. Okay, but then since you are actually you know, sort of the power in control, why don't we, you know, work together? But that doesn't happen. The the only thing that happens is the uh, sort of a judgment. And that's, uh, and yes. that's true in many societies. Obviously, it's not only in Israel-Palestine, but in many other societies. So I think you pointed to one of the most important aspects of the relationship between Israeli and Palestinians here. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you something again about uh, discrimination, because I think this is very important. In a, an interview I read about you, but also in the, um, it says that originally you wrote this book for Palestinians, mm -hmm. which suggests to me that you were really thinking to kind of engage with the Palestinian uh, sort of uh, elites, let's use this term, sort yeah. of, but also, I guess, with the Palestinian people who might be, feel sort of the attachment to what you're talking about in your book. Do you think you are being successful? Uh, that was my target audience for sure. Um, the only problem, it's very, very sad. The only problem is that it's hard for those people to buy my book uh, in in the area. It's like it is available on, on Amazon and like other um, the on. OK, so the paperback is only available on Amazon. The ebook is available internationally. And the problem is that not many people want to read an ebook. And that's the saddest part, because my target audience is exactly those people because uh, they are actually the elite group, those who are fed up and want to make the change. Uh, for, for my people that I got to sign and ship a copy personally to them, uh, they really, really enjoying the book and I'm speaking for them. I am their voice. And I know that there's that group because I grew up with that group. My friends at college back home, they were all people who think like me, who said, we want to make change. How can we do it? So I took a step. 
And for them, because they're back home, it's hard for them to take that step. We are going to take a short break. Today's guest was a suggestion coming from several listeners. Please feel free to send your views, suggestions, and comments throughout our social media platforms, Facebook page, and Twitter and Instagram accounts at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Jerusalem Plug is a relatively small platform. But my experience tells me that uh, it is it has a good following um, throughout Palestine. And so I really gladly want to give you this opportunity to take your time and send a message to that people. They may not be able to read your book now, but I'm sure they're going to be able to listen to this recording. Yeah. The floor is yours. Whatever you want to tell them, please. So it's hard to summarize everything in the book because that's half of the book. But um, I think what I'm trying to say in my book is just to describe why all these types of discrimination is wrong. And... Part of the reasons why I do that is just to strong, strongen our arguments. Now, it's sad that I can't use every argument in every chapter right now because of uh, the limitation of time. However, I would say that change can happen and uh, very, very cliche and very basic, but it really starts with ourselves. And um, it's, it's hard because it's a long time process. Um, we can judge other people sometimes. And I'm one of the people who, who grew up judging other people, if like you know what I mean. But I'm trying my best to change that mentality because um, it just makes me happier. And if you can also work on that, then it will make you and the people around you happier. And eventually, 
we will create this type of ripple effect where we don't really discriminate against each other because of how we changed ourselves, not of the stories that we heard from the generation that is older than us. So yeah, it all starts within us. And the second more um, important point is to take that initiative, take that step and do something about it. No matter how small it is, it can literally just be a story you tell someone. It really does make a change. Thank you so much. I think this is going to resonate with a lot of people. And I want to ask you a question. It might be uncomfortable for some. What is the role of religion in, in your discourse? How do you see religion playing a role in change? Religion is an important component, not just of Jerusalem, but of Israel and Israeli and Palestinian identity. And it's something that we cannot simply neglect and forget. So I was wondering, how do you bridge this idea of religion with the change that you're talking about? Honestly, uh, religion can play such an important role because uh, the nature of uh, Jerusalemites, Palestinians in general, we are very religious people. And no matter what you are, you're Christian, you're Muslim, whatever, it really doesn't matter. We're very religious people by nature. and there's a huge, huge role that religious people like reverends or um, sheikhs or whatever, they have, they play a huge role. Their message will be listened and their message will be also applied. So it depends on what these people say. This is how we will react. So uh, I think I was blessed to be, uh, to grow up in uh, the Lutheran church, actually. Uh, first of all, I did struggle with my, my belief a lot. Sometimes I believe, sometimes I don't. It really depends on the phase I'm in. But uh, in, only in the past few months, I've been feeling very spiritual. And honestly, the church, the Lutheran church, has helped me in so many ways. First of all, I am in the U.S. right now because of the um, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And my church back home connected me to them. And... Um, Without them, I wouldn't even write this book. But then, at the same time, I'm still getting support back home, especially uh, with the women's side or aspect of this whole discrimination situation. They actually work so hard for women. And also, sometimes there are some things that are unspoken, but I was amazed by my last visit when I was uh, home in Jerusalem last time. I was uh, meeting with the bishop and um, the Lutheran bishop. I was telling him, are you sure you want to like help me sponsor my book? Because they they, they helped me a lot um, in, uh, like financially in order to publish my book. And I was sure, are you okay with every message in this book? He said, uh, because I do talk about LGBT and I know that the church is still in the Middle East, they completely disagree with such topics. Like they don't want to even hear about them. He said one thing, he said, even though the church is hard to change these days, and even though like there are some people who disagree, I want you to know that personally, I totally agree with you. There are just some things that cannot that, that the church right now cannot fully um, support. But that's okay. That gives me hope. Like at least the people agree with me, and that gives me that motivation to keep on going. So yeah, the churches and the mosques play a huge, huge role. Churches mosques, synagogues, they have their own time. They don't uh, 
follow a fast pace. Certainly don't follow the pace of uh, social media or technology where they constantly change. And, I, and in a sense, I appreciate that, uh, to recognize the fact that that institution cannot mm -hmm. uh, move fast, uh, you know, in general, but at the same time that you find individuals within the institution that can allow for change to happen. And I think that that is an important aspect that you just highlighted. I want to go back to your book and uh, you're basically suggesting that change can happen through different tools. And this is what you have been talking about. Mm -hmm. You're also talking about the idea of providing non-Palestinians, which means essentially everybody else, with a background about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, I guess with a background of what's really going on in, in the region. Now you're sitting in Los Angeles and Americans do have a sort of a very monolithic view of the conflict. Mm -hmm. How do you negotiate this? How do you try to provide a different uh, narrative? What is that you want to provide non-Palestinians? What kind of backgrounds? So I do talk about one story in the book about um, how, how it is like to talk about my narrative to people here. Before COVID, it was very, very difficult. Um, like people don't want to even hear me. They have this idea in their head and the idea that one, uh, one story in their head seems perfect and they don't want to change it. And I tried and I, I started talking, describing what Palestine is. But honestly, at some point, I really gave up. I was like, why am I even arguing with people who don't want to even listen to me? However, after uh, COVID and after specifically the George Floyd incident, people uh, at least the younger generation started sharing stories about what's been happening uh, other than racism in the US so many issues were brought up like famine in Yemen or Palestine and people have been becoming more aware of what's going on in Palestine so now when I talk to people um, I, I tell them oh I'm from Jerusalem Palestine um, they would come with a very different reaction. They would tell me, oh, I just wanted you to know that what's happening there is so unfair for your people. And I just want you to know that we stand on your side. I'm glad I'm hearing that now. Before, I really never heard anything that supported me. Maybe just one or two narratives. I know a few people who, who used to travel back to Palestine, help and so on. These people already know the narrative and know what's going on. But just hearing it from people you don't expect to hear it from, it's very nice. It's very um, uh, soothing, I would say, or just like comforting. That's the word, comforting. I like this idea that you feel comforted in uh, sharing, uh, you know, the, the sort of the histories and stories from Palestine and that's try to change in the small context you're living, uh, you know, slowly, one step at a time instead of a, bigger change. And I wanted to reflect with you on something today as we're recording this uh, interview, so mid-March, there's a, lots of activities on, lots, lots of activity on, um, on Twitter about, uh, you know, questions related to Palestine, Israel, and particularly related to the, to the, to the definition of the conflict. So some argue this is a conflict about land. 
or some would call it a real estate conflict, like, you know, an issue about who's controlling what. Would you agree with this? Do you think there's something more? Is that really about uh, who's controlling Jerusalem, the holy sites, maybe uh, uh, a piece of land north and south, or there's something more? Well, the obvious is uh, a piece of land, because that's how the argument started. Um, the Jews were discriminated in Europe, and I really feel sorry for them. What happened is very sad and like should not have happened. But it started with both two arguments, the religious argument, um, uh, like uh, the people needed a land based on the, uh, you know, the message of the Torah. But then how do they get that land, uh, that, that nation, they need a land. So the land was also the main argument. But then for Palestinians, uh, I mean, we were welcoming for uh, Jewish people at the beginning because we had uh, Jewish tribes also in Palestine before all of this happened, before nine, uh, 1947 and so on. And um, then things changed. Um, the religious argument is not really, to me, it doesn't really apply anymore. It's not about the religious argument anymore. It's just more than that. But still, for Palestinians, they considered the land because you can't come to a, a land with people and say, no, God said this is my land and you just decide to take it, which is the story that happened. But uh, I think it's definitely more than that. But if you ask me what is more than that, I really don't know. I, I don't know what the struggle is about, what the conflict is about. I'm trying, I'm trying to figure it out because on the obvious, it is the land. But maybe it's just human nature of survival. <laughs> I don't know. It's something like, no, this is for me. I have to have it in order to survive. I was just wondering about it because you made me think earlier the fact that you're you know, young, a woman, try to make a positive change and try to make this change happen. And, and at the same time, you know, you read the Twitter, you read social media comments, and you get the sense that there is an entire world stuck, mm -hmm. you know, in relation to the conflict. And it seems that cannot move forward or at least try to look at uh, this conflict from a different perspective. So it's, it's very interesting that you, you also mentioned earlier that essentially you grew up seeing the world and the conflict through the eyes of your parents and mm -hmm. your, your grandparents. So there is this sense of continuity, but also of uh, change, because that's what you are trying to do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I wanted to ask you something again about uh, the book before we reach the conclusion. In your book, you're talking about marginalized Palestinians, mm -hmm. women. Who else? So other than women, uh, there's, uh, there's actually a small Afro-Palestinian community in Jerusalem. It's very, very small. It consists of like around uh, 300 to 400 people, maybe more now. Um, but yeah, that's also one of the groups that's discriminated against. Um, uh, there's this uh, person who's Afro-Palestinian, he says, in Palestine, the Afro-Palestinian community is double oppressed. First, by the occupation, second, by our color. And, and the color aspect is by Palestinians themselves. And um, the, the third group would be the LGBT. I don't think, um, like, I... I know a few friends and 
I sympathize with them because what they go through is very, it's not okay because they can't basically come out. And if they did, is it even easier if they did? Because they will be persecuted by other Palestinians. The fourth group, I talk about religion, religion in the sense that people should be free to choose what uh, they, huh, it's hard to say that because I can't contradict myself too. Religion in the sense that, first of all, we shouldn't discriminate against religions as religions um, and the good religious beliefs. There, There is some toxicity when it comes to religion and sadly we all fall into that at some point. But uh, we, we forget to mention that re the reason why religion is there is just so that we treat each other better, so that we live morally, I guess. And the last one uh, is class. And uh, it's not really more about the rich and the poor. It's more about the effects of capitalism to people and not only just capitalism in Israel, but worldwide, global capitalism. So, Israeli society, Palestinian society are highly male dominated. Mm -hmm. How do you see women making a change? How do you see yourself making a change? I think I can make a lot of change. Um, I really want to be either an ambassador or a diplomat for Palestine. I really do. Um, and I feel that would be the easier way because um, you would like involving yourself in policy making is kind of one of the easiest way to, to make that change. But then there's the system that's very patriotic. That's going to make it way harder for women like me to make that change. And that's very, very sad because you cannot change the system, at least not now. Well, I hope you're going to be part of this generation making real change. In America, we had the first uh, not only woman, but uh, uh -huh. African-American and Asian woman as a vice president. So change is possible, right? And uh, this is like the hope for the future in a sense. And I whether people may like or not the politics of Kamala Harris, but I think it's certainly important to look at her as the person that, you know, just broke the ceiling right now and that can inspire generation of women. That's so true. I want to bring you back to Jerusalem before we end the conversation. You mentioned earlier that one of the favorite spots in Jerusalem is uh, Mamilla, but I, I just want to take you around the city and, uh, explore the urban fabric so if you were to name two places where you would like to go right now get a coffee sit down have a chat with your friends what would they be it's interesting because my first thought is Mamela and you know it but the second one it's it's not even in jerusalem um my favorite times were in bethlehem university's library they had a very nice uh, cafe outside, um, like very nice view. It's all flowers all around you up in the air. And um, it was such a nice mood because that's literally where we planned how to make our change. So <laughs> that is the second favorite place. I gather you like Jerusalem, but only up to a point, which I think is a, <laughs> is a good point to make. Uh, what is that you don't like in particular of the city of Jerusalem? Maybe, maybe, I think my family's attachment to it. <laughs> like, 
why do they love it so much? I don't get it. Like, why are they fighting their whole life? They've been fighting for, like, Jerusalem and the Jerusalemite ID. And I just never got it. Like, I want to get it, but I just don't. <laughs> How's life for Jerusalemite in Los Angeles? I mean, these are such a different places. Uh, and yet, you know, may, you may argue the weather, the climate, uh, the melting pot of people up to a point. How's life for a Jerusalemite in Los Angeles? It's funny because the weather is almost the same. Um, I like it would be raining here, and my mom would tell me, "Oh, it's raining here too," uh, because it is on the same equator line, kind of above it, just but same same climate. But um, what is it like? Well, definitely, I kind of stand out more here because I bring in a new perspective, uh, new stories, new narratives. And sometimes people want to listen to your own background and that makes me appreciate it because here I am a voice for my people and basically I am an ambassador for my people. So I just try to be that. <laughs> One last question. I'm sure you met people who have been to Jerusalem or know something about Jerusalem. Do you see any difference between what they tell you and the city that you grew up in and you experienced? Uh, it's very interesting because it depends on those people. Did they go to the Palestinian parts only? Did they go to the Israeli parts only? Or did they go to both? Now, I would respect someone who went to both sides and saw that like both of the narratives. And um, I have a lot of connections here or uh, not only in California, I know some people in Washington state and kind of all over the US who, who've been there, who have experienced it. And I just enjoy my conversations with them because they kind of know what's going on. Because once you go to Jerusalem, it's not just something that stops. Like you don't go to Jerusalem once. You go and you try to understand it, but you don't. So you travel back to where you came from and then come back again. <laughs> you just want to understand what's going on. And uh, yeah, I really do enjoy these people because I feel like I do connect with them on a level uh, that I want to connect with, in, like with other people here. This was Tamara Dad, author of The Future of Palestine, How Discrimination Interchange, available on Amazon and possibly in other many bookstores around the U.S. and around the world soon. Tamar, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And remember to join all of our social media platforms, our Facebook page, but also our Twitter and Instagram accounts. If you have any suggestions about guests, topics, please get in touch. Feel free to leave your comments. And remember, enjoy, share, subscribe. Thank you until the next podcast. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? 
All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.